This is the Nietzsche Podcast. Welcome back to the Nietzsche Podcast. I'm just doing a brief housekeeping segment here just to let you know, all of you know about my life. We missed an episode last week because I was able to preload or, you know, schedule enough episodes for just shy of one week covering, you know, the time when I was on tour. Actually, I covered the entire time when I was on the road, pretty much. It was just, I got back and I didn't have enough time to put together another episode. Um, and so I needed to also take the time off, um, because it's just been, it's exhausting when you get back from such a, um, you know, expedition like that. And then jumping back into, uh, you know, normal life, it's kind of tough. Thankfully I did have my materials prepared to start recording episodes, um, or at least had like episodes drafted. So we're finally getting back on the horse and getting the podcast going. I know we've only been off for like a week, but you know, there was a time when I never missed a week upload and I, I probably shouldn't beat myself up too much for it, but I guess this is like the third one. I'm like counting all my strikes, right? So in any case, we're back. I'm glad to be back. Um, I still need to do the second half of that Q and a episode or Q and a number seven. So that is planned. It's probably going to come well in the coming weeks, the patrons will get it first, obviously. And then, um, what else, uh, we're going to be doing beyond good and evil for the, um, book analysis in between seasons. So that's very exciting as well. We have only four more episodes, including this one on Nietzschean politics or political philosophy. And, um, as I've mentioned before, I'm very happy to conclude this, not only because I've enjoyed looking at all these like ancient political questions from thousands of years ago, some of which are rather timeless, some of which seem somewhat irrelevant, but they're all sort of separate from the like partisan issues of today, which is very liberating for me because I find all of that very tedious. But also, you know, um, I'm, I'm just glad to be done with it. Um, it was uh, something I wanted to grapple with and be like very open and brutally honest about is Nietzsche's politics and really understand where the man is coming from and understand the implications of his ideas. Um, if we accept them descriptively, even if we don't prescriptively agree, if that makes sense. And we're doing more of that today. Um, you know, with Nietzsche's thoughts on like the not theoretical political genius like Caesar and Napoleon. Um, but I think we can still like get, you know, something out of it. I'm just, I'm happy to move on because um, next season I think is going to be very exciting and I have very little idea of how I'm going to structure it, but, um, the transition point in the podcast is coming soon. And I think we're going to be going into some very fun territory where we're going to talk about a lot of Nietzsche's interpreters. I'm going to get a little bit more far reaching with some of the topics, maybe covering some, you know, more obscure stuff from Nietzsche. Although I've already done an episode talking about the time atomism fragment with uh, Quinn and we've talked about some, you know, a lot of obscure and unpublished essays. So I like to think that we're willing to really get into the nitty gritty and, and talk about all these things. But you know, next season we're talking about Deleuze, hopefully Heidegger, um, you know, Freud, Jung, uh, all these people who have, uh, you know, Adorno, um, people who have, uh, been influenced by Nietzsche. We're going to talk about that a lot more. And we're going to talk about going to get into more interpretation and 
ideas that spin off of Nietzsche's ideas. Um, which again, that's all exciting territory, but I'm very glad we're finally done with all the like extraneous sources that we've been covering this season. And these last episodes are going to be all just diving right back into Nietzsche. So it's very familiar territory for everybody. So just wanted to update everyone on why there was no episode last week, where we are on the podcast, where this is going. Um, so yeah, thanks everybody. Thanks for listening. Um, without further ado, here's the episode. We began the season by describing Nietzsche politically as an aristocratic radical. Nietzsche believes that hierarchy is inevitable and natural, and in fact that hierarchy is the character of all life. Life is always moving, it's either ascending or descending, it doesn't stand still. And so therefore, Nietzsche perceives that there is this order of rank between individuals, in which those who are most powerful ascend to the top, and then those with instincts or capabilities that are botched or inadequate or life-denying are, in some sense, discarded. They're treated as if they're of no regard, because in Nietzsche's perspective, it's the exception that drives the species forward, just as it is the mutation that drives the genome forward. So Nietzsche conceives of the aristocracies of past ages in exactly this way, as the exceptional people and thus the only true individuals, and consequently, the only true fraternal class of people. But there's an exception to this model, an exception to the exceptions, we might say, and that exception is the figure of Caesar. We'll use the term Caesar here in a broad, extended sense, just as we used Ibn Khaldun's terminology of Bedouins to describe a certain kind of society. For Ibn Khaldun, the Bedouin is any group which is not sedentary, but rather nomadic, and exists in the wilderness, still subject to the external pressures of nature, such that we might refer to the Mongolian way of life circa the time of Genghis as a Bedouin way of life, even though the Mongols are not Bedouins, right? So too, in this case, we might refer to figures such as Napoleon or Friedrich II as Caesars. So why is this type of figure so important to Nietzsche? And I think it's been very important that we've gone over these sources which are extraneous to Nietzsche, such as Ibn Khaldun, Peter Turchin, Robert Mickles, uh, Michael Parenti, because otherwise it might have been rather easy to misunderstand where Nietzsche is coming from on this issue. It might simply seem like a reflection of what we would call his great man worship, and it's very tempting to simply say, well, Nietzsche just thinks this way because he has a high regard for you know, great individuals, without bothering to ask the question as to why he would have such a high regard, or what we even really mean by a great individual in the political sense. And when we look to Nietzsche's writings, there is an explanation for the figure of a Caesar or a Napoleon, and an explanation for their importance. And in my opinion, it isn't just a reflection of Nietzsche's arbitrary preferences, Caesar is an objective and recurring phenomenon from the Nietzschean perspective, something in the very cycle of political life that emerges again and again at a specific point and when specific factors are met. But another problem is that even if we understand this Caesarism as something Nietzsche would advocate for as a consequence of his broader philosophy, if we hadn't looked at some of these other sources that we've gone over in the past handful of episodes I think it would be easy to lose sight of the fact that Nietzsche does not necessarily argue from the position of what he finds desirable. Uh, in some sense, his entire method is to set aside the question of what we find desirable or not. Uh, 
That's why he uh, says that the truth is hard and that the strength of a soul might be measured in terms of how much truth one could tolerate or endure. And so Nietzsche advocates for the positions he does based on his perception of human history and not based on idealism, at least according to Nietzsche himself, right? And so his favorites in the realm of politics and history are therefore Machiavelli and Thucydides, who don't moralize about history, but attempt to describe it objectively. So I think the first step in really getting it with Nietzsche's conception of a Caesar is to first understand what he's saying from a descriptive lens before we begin to play with prescriptive interpretations. It's complicated, however, because in everything Nietzsche argues morally, there is in some sense a unity of the descriptive and prescriptive. And what this means is that will to power is a meta-ethic and that it tells us about the essential quality in all moral systems, all of them aim at self-overcoming. So the utilitarian has to overcome his immediate personal benefit in exchange for the greatest good of the greatest many in pursuit of that, right? The stoic must overcome his instincts or passions with the aid of reason. Uh, the Christian must overcome his sinful nature in pursuing the holy life and so on and so forth. There's always some aspect of morality that is about overcoming some part of yourself so that a more valuable aspect of yourself can ascend in some sense. So to put it into Aristotelian terms, the concept of will to power is descriptive. Uh, it tells us what the telos of every moral system is. The telos of a moral system is self-overcoming. But having grasped that telos, we can now evaluate different moralities in terms of how well they measure up to that telos, right? That's how the ought and is distinction then collapses at this level of analysis because the telos, the aim of all moral standards, self-overcoming, according to Nietzsche, becomes itself a standard by which to measure them. And so to steel man Nietzsche's position here, far from seeing Nietzsche use this as like a rhetorical method to simply endorse and outline some idealized moral outcome for society, uh, you know, claiming that the ought that he prefers is united with the is, that the prescriptive is united with the the descriptive in order to simply push a certain set of prescriptions. Instead, what we see in Nietzsche's writing is that he eschews any opportunity to outline an ideal state or an ideal system. We don't get that in Nietzsche's work. In fact, he actively argues against it. I'm not claiming that you couldn't say certain definitive things about the kind of societies Nietzsche would approve or disapprove of, but he's not a political philosopher in the traditional sense, and he never outlines a program for you know, what the state should look like. Nietzsche's insistence on naturalism and morality, as he calls it, is not therefore an attempt to sneak a universal moral standard into his philosophy. Its purpose is actually to oppose this conception of morality as anti-nature, morality that tries to condemn man for being what he is. At least in my perception, which is biased because I am a Nietzschean, I would suggest that Nietzsche's war against desirability or beliefs that make us happy and comforted indicates this. Nietzsche unites the is and ought in order to make our oughts based on what is, not to do what every other moralist does with this little trick and attempt to sort of remake the is in the image of their own oughts, if that makes sense. So Nietzsche's project is for us to wish for nothing to be different. That's a way of putting it in plain English, except reality and treat all its aspects as absolutely necessary and unchangeable. And then if you wish to advocate for something, advocate within the bounds of that realistic grounding. Nietzsche was not attempting to unite the ought and is in order to say 
that what ought to be the case is somehow demanded of the is, that his morality is demanded of the facts as we see them in some objective sense. That is more what Ayn Rand or Jeremy Bentham or Sam Harris all try to do, claim they've collapsed the is-ought distinction, but as a means of arguing their chosen morality and saying that it's objectively the correct one. With Nietzsche, he instead argues that no morality is the correct one, that in the realm of morality there are no facts, only moral interpretations of the facts. These moral interpretations are usually, as we've said, means of comforting ourselves. And so we've explored how there's this recurring pattern in human political life that Nietzsche perceives. The state first emerges, Nietzsche says in the essay The Greek State, as an objectification of instinct. It is born, he argues in Genealogy of Morality, when hard, nomadic, barbarian peoples throw themselves onto mild, senile, older civilizations. He says they then emerge from this orgy of violence and bloodletting as this new fighting aristocracy. This is attested to by Ibn Khaldun. He sees this pattern play out between the Bedouin tribes and the sedentary cultures. Um, the sedentary cultures are all founded by these warrior peoples, um, but over time they become more peaceable and they eventually become conquered themselves over many generations. As Peter Turchin argues in Ultra Society, this is the warfare theory of social evolution, that society itself, the state itself, are creations resulting from the necessities of warfare. That organization occurs at greater and greater levels of scale and complexity because the individuals need to coordinate in order to more successfully make war. Uh, God is on the side of large battalions, that old French saying. So more successfully exercise your power against enemies in a physical sense. That is what happens as uh, you're able to coordinate um, more complex actions and more large-scale actions with more and more people. And so the state emerges as this very organizing force to maintain the cohesion of the first social group, which is the army. The, that's the basis of all society, according to the warfare theory of social evolution. So the original meaning of populus, or the people in the Latin tongue of the ancient Romans, the original meaning was army. The populace was the army. So that's one example that would seem to corroborate the warfare theory. And what was it that bound these peoples together? Well, religion. Again, something attested to by Ibn Khaldun. Religion is a means of fostering asabia, or the capacity for cooperation. And the high asabia Bedouins are always more religious than those low asabia city dwellers. Nietzsche perceives that the aristocracies at the beginning of the Hellenic civilization were seen as sanctioned by divinities and as somewhat divine in and of themselves. In the work of the poet Theogenes, for example, Nietzsche sees the aristocratic despair at Theogenes' perception that the divine belief in the aristocracy is now waning. Fustel de Collange wrote in his study, The Ancient City, uh, that all the Greek and Roman landholders treated the land where their ancestors were buried as a holy place, and they saw their ancestors as deities. And therefore, every member of the nobility would himself become an ancestral deity in the course of time. And so one's entire life became devoted to pleasing or edifying the gods and ancestors who rule over your fate and who 
sort of are your fate in a way. And so the discipline instilled by this worship and the social duties and responsibilities are what the Romans called religiones, which meant the ties that bind people together on the social level. And it's through these ties that bind, originating from blood relation, you know, in the earliest form, but eventually expanding into the tribal level and then the level of the whole city, um, really being bound by shared worship, right, at each level as they confederate. Um, you know, the first city-states of the Indo-European sort of ancestral civilization to our own and that of India were created under that type of religion. And in these city-states, every male citizen comprised the army, uh, or they were the militia that was called up to fight, or to defend the city, and the city-states, in the case of the Hellenic world, warred almost ceaselessly with one another, constantly striving to outrival all others. And within the iron clamp of the state, as Nietzsche calls it, the individual willpower of all members was compressed into productive channels, whereby all competed for greatness, but among friends, while marshalling together to destroy their enemies who lived in the foreign cities, right? So, this is the state as a young and healthy thing at its origins, this young, uh, vital period, but it's not to last. As happened in the Greek city-states, the prosperity brought to a successful city leads to the uh, import, importing of luxuries, a uh, rising merchant class, and then they begin to create things like institutions of learning and you know foster the disciplines of the arts and the sciences. And the people begin to question the divinely sanctioned hierarchy that was established at the beginning of the polity. Now, in truth, that hierarchy was established by power alone and for the sake of power alone, according to Nietzsche. But inevitably, uh, this rising skepticism and you know this creation of disciplines such as philosophy or the sciences or new religious movements... That all challenges that morality, which is based purely on power, and which was sort of blindly accepted on a religious basis. Um, that's what you know we might even call a sort of a natural morality, even though it has illusory or false elements of it. Right? Um, Nietzsche would even say that it's in life's nature to lie to itself, to deceive itself, right, for its own to achieve its own ends. But within the bounds of stability and comfort, the people begin to doubt the legitimacy of conquest and arbitrary violence, especially. And, you know, it's true, they still have to engage in violence and blood sacrifice during these early days to appease their gods. But with the coming of education and the sciences and philosophy, the morality of tradition becomes questionable over time and society begins to doubt itself. The people become more compassionate and mild and less able to defend themselves. And we can see this in the example of the Roman Republic. Um, you know, so long as the Republic is subjected to this selection mechanism of warfare, the explosion of luxury is kept under control and the population doesn't grow beyond the society's means. But if that selection mechanism uh, is not maintained, the luxury begins to flow into the to the uh, society, the elite class begins to expand too rapidly. And what was previously the traditional morality of society, this austere morality among the aristocrats and a religious sort of state of mind that binds the people together, um, that begins to fade. 
that inevitably happens as man tries continually to improve his condition and improve his well-being, as of course he would. And as generations be, are born within the safety of these city walls, and they're able to shirk their obligations for duty or self-sacrifice or warfare, that morality, those religiones, can no longer stop uh, the trends that are involved. Um, it's it, you know sort of inevitable for it to wane away. And as we saw in the work of Turchin, the oversupply of labor, the oversupply of elites, begins to lead to infighting and inequality. The group's no longer unified against external threats, but divided against itself. And as Parenti shows in his study, the nobility in this situation will do everything possible to hold on to power because their awareness of their advantages of their class position will lead them to fight tooth and nail to stop any aspirant elites from taking any portion of it or of their being deprived of their ancient privileges by the common people. And yet this is exactly what happens as recorded by the likes of Plato by Plutarch, Livy, Thucydides, so many ancient authors. Social unrest leads to counter-elites emerging to lead the common people in revolution. The social consensus breaks down, the society can no longer hold together cohesively or repel threats effectively or even levy and collect taxes. The state's coffers run dry, incompetent people begin to reach the top of the hierarchy, the army is no longer loyal, and Perhaps ironically, during this period, the highest attainments of art and culture are reached. Science makes incredible discoveries. The intellectual productions are unparalleled in their quality and quantity. The entire harvest of culture is ready to be reaped. And yet that means, you know, when do you reap when autumn is coming, right? And when everything is withered, that means that society is ready to collapse. The average period of a state's lifespan is three to four generations in Ibn Khaldun's estimation. Sir John Glubb saw the shelf life of an empire as being around 200 to 250 years. Peter Turchin's structural demographic analysis marks out the range as being two to 300 years with an average of about 250. Turchin breaks it down into an integrative period where you have an empire rising and integrating and then a trend reversal after which you have what he calls imperiopathosis, where the empire begins uh, degenerating. And in many cases, the end of this process is simply that the state in question is conquered, right? Ibn Khaldun, uh, he brings this up where he says that God allowed the Zoroastrian dynasties of Persia to be wiped out and subdued by the Muslims. He allowed the Greek world led by uh, Alexander and his ancestors to be eventually conquered and made into a province of Rome. So oftentimes the end of the imperial cycle is simply death. But sometimes factors converge such that something else happens. And at that very point, um, the very bottoming out of the social consensus and the collapse of the, the social order um, and the chaos that surrounds all of this allows for a figure to emerge a single individual that leads society in a transformation, in a trend reversal, to put it in Turchin's terms, and you know, prog to progress back into an integrative functional state. And that is what the figure of a Caesar represents, um, to, to speak strictly from a technical standpoint or a descriptive standpoint. The Roman Republic is the sort of 
alternative example to the Persians or the Greeks, right? Rather than finding themselves wiped out, the Romans managed to reintegrate. Um, they completely reorganized their social order, and they do that around the reign of one man and his successors. And what comes out of that is another cycle of prosperity where Rome maintains its cohesion uh, for another few hundred years. And so to speak then prescriptively or morally or even sort of religiously, if we you know wanted to talk about why somebody might uh, admire or advocate for such a figure, Julius Caesar in many respects is sort of like that other JC, right? So Jesus Christ is a great king among men who rises from the dead and can raise others too, like Lazarus. But he does this in the realm of legend and myth, and he offers sort of like a spiritual salvation that occurs within, right? That's Nietzsche's perspective on Jesus and the work, the Antichrist. But for Nietzsche, the true savior, the, the worldly savior, if I might be so blasphemous, uh, is a Caesar. Julius Caesar is a great king, he raises a whole empire from the dead, a whole society. He lays hands on the dead social order and resurrects it. Um, it, it. It's the idea of a worldly natural Messiah occurring objectively in history and acting in the material world through material means. Um, now, uh, it's a little bit different from, actually, in, in many ways, the, the Caesar is like an inversion of Jesus because um Everything that this type of figure in Nietzsche's thought is all about is completely self-directed and not other-directed, right? Whereas Jesus dies for the sake of mankind. So in a way, we're talking about an antichrist-type figure. Um, and so that's very important to remember. But it is one of those strange aspects of history that we have two people whose initials are JC uh, who come within a couple decades of each other. And one, you know, sort of echoes through the political order through all time, especially in the West, right? In World War One, you have um, like three belligerent powers who all think that they're successors to the Roman Empire, the British, uh, the Germans, and the Russians. And two of them are calling themselves Caesar, right? <laughs> the German uh, Kaiser and the Russian Tsar, both of those terms mean Caesar. And then, of course, Jesus Christ and Christianity obviously echoes down through the spiritual history of Europe for millennia. Now, what Nietzsche perceives to sum all of this up is this. Aristocracy is not really a system of government. It's not something that comes out of ideas or theory. It's simply the social expression of the order of rank in nature. So long as life is young and healthy, it expresses what is natural. But the very premise of society is this withdrawal from the natural state, from the war of all against all. And this is done for the purposes of conducting war as a unit. So it, it occurs within the logic of the war of all against all. But it creates this cohesiveness, which we call a sabia in the language of Ibn Khaldun. And like Nietzsche, he sees this not as a sort of idealized egalitarian collectivism, but Khaldun describes it as the capacity for commanding and obeying for division of labor, for the trust that if I do my task, you'll do yours, and so on and so forth. And since this coordination is so powerful, society becomes very effective at extricating its members from this state of war, even to extricate some of them from it entirely. And as a result of this, it becomes the victim of its own success, because the social order begins to weaken.
The result of that is everything we just mentioned, the questioning of the hierarchy, or of even the concept of hierarchy itself, and the attempts to destroy or level that system. And for the past several thousands of years, um, this pattern has been repeating, and it never actually leads to the socialistic or egalitarian utopia, but instead to the simply the downfall of society and the reinstatement of a hierarchy simply under new management. Um, this is something that is written in the book 1984 in Goldstein's book. He's the, um, you know, the great enemy of Big Brother. It turns out later the book is actually written by the party um, because controlling their opposition is one of the ways that the party stays in control in 1984. But the work of Robert Mickles was actually very influential on 1984. And that book, uh, The Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism, that Winston finds, um, it, and that he reads from, and that there are sections of in the work in 1984, it reads very much like a summary of what Robert Mickles wrote. And there are passages uh, in that book, within a book, where um, he's talking about how there are have always been three classes of men, the high, the middle, and the low, and that what happens from time to time is that the people in the middle, so in Turchin's terms, like the aspirant elite or the counter elites, will rally the people of the lower class to fight for them and displace the current people who are in the high class, the upper class, the aristocracy. And then, uh, but once they overthrow them, the people in the middle establish a new aristocracy. They are now the people in the highest class, and then a new middle is created beneath them. Um, and so the reason for this in Mikkel's, um sociological analysis of political parties is that organization itself requires this commanding and obeying structure, meaning that he who says organization says oligarchy. Um, so in order to coordinate uh, this requires, in some sense, this division of labor that some people are making the decisions, but the majority are executing them. And that means, you know, for all the reasons that we brought out in that very long episode about the iron law of oligarchy, that the destruction of oligarchy is therefore the destruction of organization. And that's why what often follows is simply the death of society. If the organization is to survive, though, that also means, by that same token, that a new oligarchy ends up taking control. And it may even seem justified, as the old nobility over the generations often begin to appear so contemptible to the society at large that we might be tempted, along with Ibn Khaldun, to perceive that they deserve it, right? That they're blameworthy in letting their competence atrophy and letting their martial qualities atrophy and letting themselves become pampered and detached. Um, but, and yet this pattern always repeats eternally because strength is ultimately self undermining and weakness is ultimately recursive. Um, and for the most part, as we mentioned, a nation gets like a single stint, one lifespan, just as we all do. It takes a Caesar figure to give a culture a second chance. We find these figures not just at this point of, you know, what would you call it, like the trend reversal within an existing state or empire, but arguably we find them whenever a breakout empire emerges into being. We might think of Genghis or the prophet Muhammad or uh, Charlemagne or Romulus. 
But what tends to happen when this sort of rejuvenating figure emerges, they recreate the hierarchy that's demanded by nature. Uh, A new oligarchy is founded, in other words. But then, in the case of Rome, for example, Romulus is assassinated. We went over this in part two of our discussion of Fustel de Collange's work. The early Roman history during the time of the Roman kingdom is this constant struggle between the oligarchs and the monarchs. Collange also sees this pattern in the early Greek city-states, that the first revolution is always the revolution of the oligarchs against the king and the removal of the one central authority figure. Um, because the oligarchs all consider themselves powerful in their own right, and they're not they're never too, uh, what would you say, deferential towards a leader amongst them. Because they always feel that if they all band together, um, because they're very class conscious, they could prevent any one leader from dominating the entire group. And so the direction of the system, the entropic force of the political system, always aims towards oligarchy, even from the very beginning. And yet oligarchies have this shelf life. Um, You could say that organization has a shelf life, and they begin to deteriorate over time. And the function of this Caesar figure is to restore it to functionality, restore the hierarchy to functionality and to respectability, we might say. Um, And part of this, therefore, means disciplining the elites for their excesses or to prune their numbers in civil wars and prescriptions, as was the case with, you know, the Solon prescriptions and um, the second triumvirate and so on and so forth. The Caesar, like any monarch, draws on popular energy and therefore opposes it to the power of the oligarchs. Um, But as history attests, the rule of one, it never lasts for long. The dynasty that is established by an extraordinary person is almost never inherited by someone extraordinary. Usually the best monarchs are those who focused on leaving behind a system or a framework that is designed to endure without them, because it's highly unlikely that if the state is, you know, continued to be trusted to the role of uh, the rule of one, right? After the Caesar or Napoleon figure who founded it has died, um, the one who next inherits this rule of one is almost certain not to be of the same caliber. Like lightning rarely strikes twice. So Napoleon the third, great example, somebody who tries to recreate that Napoleon magic and uh, he fails. Uh, now you could say in, in some sense the, that Napoleon quote unquote failed, but um, as we'll talk about, Napoleon sort of reshaped the entire like French state. So Now, the great person for Nietzsche, speaking here in the political sense, might be understood as that Alpha and Omega, then. If I can, again, borrow from the religious language. Um, I'm not trying to cast the Nietzschean higher man as like a religiously sanctioned or divine figure, as Carlyle does, but to convey how, once again, Nietzsche is taking the psychological needs that we look to religion to provide and transposing the solution onto the material world. And sometimes from our modern liberal standpoint, that's where you get, you know, uh, outcomes that might be somewhat horrifying to us. But this is the manifestation of that, I don't know, what you you would say, uh, the psychological need of the Messiah, um, to the extent that it exists in Nietzsche, um, I think exists in this conception of the political genius, right? So... What justifies the entire progression of a state from its founding to its death is the production of genius, as Nietzsche talked about 
uh, in his essays that we covered earlier in the season. Um, that genius is sort of, it's like what you get, what you get to reap, what we talked about reaping the harvest of the culture and the arts and sciences, right? Um, that's what you get within that uh, iron clamp of the state. But what we're talking about here in this sense is the political genius. Uh, we might look to the terminology that Nietzsche uses in Birth of Tragedy, section 18, where he speaks of the non-theorist, the non-theoretical genius. What does Nietzsche mean by this? Well, in this passage, he directly contrasts the figure of Napoleon with the archetypes of Socrates and Faust. Both of those figures are situated within the theoretical approach to life. So those are men of knowledge. One is real and one's fictional. One's ancient and one's modern. But their type of genius and the type of genius that we best understand and usually talk about is the production of philosophy, of human knowledge and achievement in the arts and sciences. That is theoretical genius, right? Socrates is the beginning of that type of genius, the relentless questioning and doubt which establishes the scientific method and the inquiry that drives all philosophy. Faust is the end of it. It's the frustration with the ultimate ignorance and the limitations of human knowledge, right? Such that one abandons it for the pursuit of the metaphysical or the even religious or even hedonistic uh, pursuits. It's simply the quest for knowledge abandoned. In contrast to both of those, there is Napoleon, who's not comparable either to Socrates nor Faust, but stands in contrast to both. Nietzsche writes in this section, quote, When Goethe on one occasion said to Eckermann with reference to Napoleon, Yes, my good friend, there is also a productiveness of deeds. He reminded us in a charmingly naive manner that the non-theorist is something incredible and astounding to modern man so that we again have need of the wisdom of Goethe to discover that such a surprising form of existence is not only comprehensible, but even pardonable, end quote. Uh, we find in that passage that he cites from Goethe's conversations with Eckermann, uh, this, uh, if we look at the full exchange, this took place on 1828, Tuesday, March 11th, quote, that divine enlightenment, which Whence everything proceeds, we shall always find in connection with youth and productiveness, as in the case of Napoleon, who was one of the most productive men who ever lived. Yes, my good friend, one need not write poems and plays to be productive. There is also a productiveness of deeds, which in many cases stands an important degree higher. End quote. So, productivity of plays and poems, we might say the fruits of genius in the arts and sciences. I think we all understand that kind of productivity quite easily. But Goethe ass asserts this productivity of deeds. He, ass he asserts that it stands a considerable degree higher, that Napoleon was one of the most productive men who ever lived. And such a stage statement, I think, seems strange or even incomprehensible to us, as Nietzsche points out, since Napoleon is a great general. Uh, he's a man with these imperial ambitions. He's mostly known for winning a bunch of battles, right? That's the way in which he was a genius. He's like the winningest general that ever existed. Um, and that's not normally something we would call productive. We might even say that it is destructive rather than productive. Unless one understands productivity as something that can occur in the non-theoretical sense, outside of the realm of intellect or abstraction, outside of the sciences or philosophy, uh, even outside of the arts or of plays and poems, right? Instead, productivity of deed great things that you did 
in your life, great accomplishments. And in that sense, Napoleon is one of the most productive people. He's productive in that non-theoretical way. He's productive in a physical way, in an embodied way. The clay that he works with is an entire nation, an entire peoples, right? And the medium of his art is the physical world and the history that plays out within it. His productivity is in how he brings his power to bear on the world. And the result of this is that out of the French Revolution, which was this incredibly moralized conflict, conceived of as the end of oligarchy and hierarchy, we get Napoleon Bonaparte. And the French Revolution, which is Bonaparte's origins, um, you know, it completely fits within Nietzsche's understanding of these eternally recurring patterns in history as he perceives them in ancient Greece. Under the banners of liberté, égalité, fraternité, the revolutionaries tear down the last vestiges of the ancient regime. And like Nietzsche mused in that one section in Human All Too Human, it's the aristocratic regime's own fault for failing to project the dignity and virtue and the divine qualities that are needed to maintain that social structure. We might say that the dynasty degenerated, just as Ibn Khaldun says that all of them eventually do. They were too weak uh, to stop such a popular uprising, but weak in a moral sense, right? But the result of this revolution and the new regime that it creates is not a leveling of all hierarchy, but uh, Robespierre, the reign of terror, a new all-powerful state that viciously exterminates their enemies. What they aimed for was a utopia, a return to nature in the Rousseauian sense of a more innocent time before the hierarchies opposed upon man by civilization. You know, and the, as Rousseau says that uh, it's civilization that's made, made man cruel and unpitying, but that man actually has a natural pity. But instead, this return to nature, what they, the French find within it is um, chaos, power struggle, the continuation of an oligarchic system albeit one based on different qualities than existed before, with a changing of the guard. By the time Bonaparte emerges, he says that all men are equal before cannon fire. That is my version of liberté, égalité, fraternité. Bonaparte, out of that decadence of the French nation, that is to say its decline, right, insofar as its people now believe in what Nietzsche calls the half-truths and idiocy of Rousseau, the Rousseauian idea of a return to nature and natural equality. Out of this rebellion against nature, we get Napoleon, who's what Nietzsche calls an actual return to nature. That is to say, Napoleon inverts the ideology of egalitarianism in such a brutal, witty, cynical way to turn the slogans of democracy into the slogans for his new militarism. He's a return to nature and that he's a return to what Nietzsche sees as the true foundations of human society, which is warfare. He's a return to the natural instinct, which is objectified in the state. Rather than Rousseau's vision of a natural equality or a natural pity, the reality of nature is domination, exploitation, parasitism, predation. The great flaw of all states is that they forget this in their comfort and eventually they have to perish. Napoleon is the kind of archetypal figure who reemerges to remind us of the realities of nature. We've looked at some excerpts from 
the following section that I'm about to read from in past episodes, but I want to return to it now. I want to look at some passages in Twilight of Idols um, in Skirmishes of an Untimely Man, beginning with the section Progress in My Sense. This is uh, section 48 where Nietzsche writes, quote, I also speak of a return to nature, although it is not a process of going back, but of going up up into lofty, free, and even terrible nature and naturalness, such a nature as can play with great tasks and may play with them, to speak in a parable. Napoleon was an example of a return to nature, as I understand it. For instance, in Rebus Tacticis, and still more, as military experts know, in strategy. But Rousseau, whither did he want to return? Rousseau, this first modern man, idealist and canaille in one person, who was in need of moral dignity in order even to endure the sight of his own person, ill with unbridled vanity and wanton self-contempt. This abortion who planted his tent on the threshold of modernity also wanted a return to nature, but I ask once more, whither did he wish to return? I hate Rousseau, even in the revolution itself, the latter was the historical expression of this hybrid of idealist and canale, the bloody farce which this revolution ultimately became. Its immorality concerns me but slightly. What I loathe, however, is its Rousseau-esque morality, the so-called truths of the revolution, by means of which it still exercises power and draws all flat and mediocre things over to its side. The doctrine of equality but there is no more deadly poison than this, for it seems to proceed from the very lips of justice, whereas in reality it draws the curtain down on all justice. To equals equality, to unequals inequality, that would be the real speech of justice, and that which follows from it never make unequal things equal. The fact that so much horror and blood are associated with this doctrine of equality, has lent this modern idea par excellence such a halo of fire and glory that the revolution as a drama has misled even the most noble minds. End quote. And I think that last remark it ties in with what Nietzsche says, where he says, um, you know, the immorality of the revolution concerns him but slightly. But what he hates Rousseau for doing is infusing it with this morality that exists even today. This is, again, Nietzsche pointing out how moral ideas are mimetic in this sense and can endure long beyond the events and conditions which produce them. And um, we can just see how the egalitarian ethos of the French Revolution is really his problem with it. And that, in fact that halo of fire and glory of all the bloodletting and the violence of the, the revolution, in a sense, Nietzsche says is almost like a point for, for it, right? That um, has won noble minds over to its side. And he might be thinking of people like Wagner or um, uh, maybe Malvita von Meisenberg, um, who I believe was fairly socialistic. But um, yeah, the people that Nietzsche really respected and was friends with, um, were socialistic or had socialistic sympathies. But more importantly about this passage, Napoleon is a going back and a going up. It's very similar to the way he 
discusses Napoleon elsewhere as half animal, half Superman. He's a return to naturalness insofar as he's this embodiment of the same natural instincts Nietzsche thinks we began to suppress within the stability and comfort of the state and the protection it provides. Uh, and that we, you know, we begin to feel guilty about things like our violent nature and adopt these moral ideas to protect ourselves against it. That in spite of the fact that we find, uh, you know, Genghis Khan and the Caesars and Napoleons of the world to be a thing of the past, they always emerge again and again, they always return. Right. And yet it's also a going up, right. An elevation of mankind. And why is that? Well, because these are the most productive types of people who have ever lived. They're productive indeed, uh, in a non-theoretical sense, but they're uh, the greatest form of genius in some sense. Because they're, in one sense, they're responsible for all the possibilities of art and culture that could possibly follow after them. Now, I, I should qualify this, that for Nietzsche, the great individual, you know, the non-theorist genius, should not be mistaken for being, you know, only valuable insofar as he provides the opportunity for these cultural productions of the theoretical type to even exist. Um, what I'm trying to get across here is that he's not a mere means to an end. Uh, Nietzsche would say this is the type of person who is an end unto himself. Um, but so Nietzsche thinks that the political genius or the great non-theorist is in and of himself a form of genius to be celebrated um, because they're these alpha and omega of civilizations. They, they live in the fault line between civilization and barbarism. They exist between the end where one society ends and another one begins, right? And uh, they have a hand in bringing forward the next one. So they are, in some sense, they are the great harvest of the entire state that came before them. They are its ends, but they're also valuable to us in that they simultaneously make possible the next great harvest, right, in the society that comes arises after such a person. So Nietzsche discusses this in Twilight of Idols. Um, this is also Skirmishes of an Untimely Man, section 44. Quote, My concept of genius... Great men, like great ages, are explosive material in which a stupendous amount of power is accumulated. The first conditions of their existence are always historical and physiological. They are the outcome of the fact that for long ages, energy has been collected, hoarded up, saved, and preserved for their use, and that no explosion has taken place. When the tension in the bulk has become sufficiently excessive, the most fortuitous stimulus suffices in order to call genius great deeds and momentous fate into the world. What then is the good of all environment, historical periods, zeitgeist, and public opinion? Take the case of Napoleon. France of the Revolution, and still more of the period preceding the Revolution, would have brought forward a type which was the very reverse of Napoleon. It actually did produce such a type. And because Napoleon was something different, the heir of a stronger, more lasting, and older civilization than that which in France was being smashed to atoms, he became master there. He was the only master there. Great men are necessary. The age in which they appear is a matter of chance. The fact that they almost invariably master their age is accounted for simply by the fact that they are stronger, that they are older, and that power has been stored longer for them. The relation of a genius to his age is that which exists between strength and weakness and between maturity and youth. The age is relatively always very much younger, thinner, less mature, less resolute, and more childish. The fact 
that the general opinion in France at the present day is utterly different on this very point. In Germany, too, but that is of no consequence. The fact that in that country the theory of environment, a regular neuropathic notion, has become sacrosanct and almost scientific and finds acceptance even among the physiologists is a very bad and exceedingly depressing sign. In England, too, the same belief prevails, but nobody will be surprised at that. The Englishman knows only two ways of understanding the genius and the great man, either democratically in the style of Buckle or religiously after the manner of Carlyle. The danger which great men and great ages represent is simply extraordinary. Every kind of exhaustion and sterility follows in their wake. The great man is an end. The great age, the Renaissance, for instance, is an end. The genius in work and in deed is necessarily a squanderer. The fact that he spends himself constitutes his greatness. The instinct of self-preservation is, as it were, suspended in him. The overpowering pressure of outflowing energy in him forbids any such protection and prudence. People call this self-sacrifice. They praise his heroism, his indifference to his own well-being, his utter devotion to an idea, a great cause, a fatherland, all misunderstandings. He flows out. He flows over. He consumes himself. He does not spare himself, and does all this with fateful necessity, irrevocably, involuntarily, just as a river involuntarily bursts its dams. But owing to the fact that humanity has been much indebted to such explosives, it has endowed them with many things, for instance, with a kind of higher morality. This is indeed the sort of gratitude that humanity is capable of. It misunderstands its benefactors. End quote. So what Nietzsche emphasizes is this involuntary nature of this type of genius. And I mean, that's not so surprising because the artistic genius's works of art are in some sense involuntary. But the great non-theoretical genius, this martial figure, this founder of states, is even less self-conscious, even less intellectual or moral in his outlook, and almost entirely physical, instinctive, practical, a genius of physical power. But importantly, at the end of the passage, Nietzsche includes that warning that I mentioned before, of taking the non-theoretical genius as valuable insofar as we are indebted to him, or understanding him in those terms. Nietzsche says it would actually be a, a misunderstanding um, to see Napoleon's goal as creating the modern French state, or Caesar's goal as destroying the old aristocracy in order to open the way for an age of peace or something like that. Um, that you know, And that's why we tended to pay tribute to such figures, at least in the past, for the utility they provided for us. Um, you know, The common people deified figures such as the Gracchi brothers, or later made Caesar into a literal god. But Nietzsche is saying, in some sense, Caesar didn't do it for you. <laughs> he had no choice in the matter. He was a bursting of a dam. All the power of a previous civilization flowing out of a single person. And in some sense, because what is valuable are these great individuals rather than the entirety of humanity. Um, they're both the means and the ends of society and culture, right? The, the, these are terms that I think might be somewhat familiar at this point because it's kind of the way that Nietzsche discusses the aristocracy itself as both the means and an ends. The non-theoretical genius takes it up another level, right? 
Um, he or she is like the king of kings, the aristocrat among the aristocracy. Um, and they're the reason why the aristocracy is able to exist at all. Now, Nietzsche off also offers an explanation as to why he thinks it is that such a figure would arise at the time they do, what factors produce such a person. And in short, it is the cosmopolitanism of empire that is largely responsible. This is a phenomenon which is both good and bad for Nietzsche, insofar as all empires, as they progress, take in many nations and peoples and belief systems and religions. And Nietzsche seems to interpret this intermingling of peoples in that Lamarckian sense, insofar as he believes that their racial qualities intermix and produce people with these confused or manifold instincts in a physiological sense. Uh, I'd like to leave the Lamarckian aspects aside and simply consider that in the late Roman Empire, for example, Nietzsche is correct insofar as there's this host of religious traditions, myriad cultures that were all introduced to one another with a series of sometimes, you know, mutually conflicting cultural traits that were all allowed to compare and contrast with one another, so to speak, to combine and syncretize even. And really key to what Nietzsche is talking about here is what we might call cultural traits in the sense that Turchin talks about. And those don't have to be inherited as Turchin stresses. In fact, it's almost a defining feature of, say, Christianity to Nietzsche that it's not inherited. Christianity is not passed down through the blood. It's not a matter of instinct. Um, in some sense, Christianity to Nietzsche is anti-nature, it's anti-instinct. It's mimetic and it exists within the realm of the mind or the spirit. So religious values, moral values, cultural traits, these can be passed down independent of reproduction and heredity. What happens is that as a great empire, a state that encompasses many nations, pushes all of these different value sets together and these value sets, these cultural traits are passed down to the next generations of individuals. Generations of people come into the world who have acquired mutually opposing valuations, mutually hostile views of life in the world, which nevertheless are inherited in the same individual. The easiest example would be that in the West, we inherit the values of Christianity and paganism. One of these ideologies in Nietzsche's view is life denying, the other is life affirming. And so this conflict is therefore part of every modern uh, person's heart, as Nietzsche says in genealogy. So what effect does this have? Well, for the people at large, it's sort of bad. Nietzsche believes that this generally has the effect of weakening the average person because the average person is a herd person and they're at their best when they're given like a single coherent moral ideology to follow, a single tablet of values to obey. With every single person given this, we might even say cursed with an internal war of ideas, they'll actually be made less decisive, less resolute, and more self-doubting, more doubting of society at large, and therefore less effective, um, with lower asabia, um, less committed to the values of the society at large because they seem ambiguous or the values of society seem to be in need of asterisks and hedging and qualifiers. And yet, um, there is another kind of person for whom this inheritance of multiple conflicting values or cultural traits can produce that explosion of energy. 
and it's more like the tension of a bow drawn taut between two poles, two ends of the bow each pulling at the string, right? Such that now the tension can be released in one person. And so that's one way of understanding Nietzsche's uh, explanation for the higher man, is that during this time of dissolution and the twilight of an empire, it's also this explosion of art and culture. It's also this ultimate age, is, age of uh, comparisons where every competing value that has been taken in and absorbed to society is compared and contrasted. And only the strongest and deepest and more most subtle people will actually be able to do that alchemy, we might call it, within themselves. For most people, it becomes crippling. But for the person with the greatest uh, strength of will, that can be used as a source of energy to... Um, shoot them forward to further goals. And so Nietzsche writes of this in Beyond Good and Evil, section 200. Quote, The man of an age of dissolution, which mixes the peoples with one another, who has the inheritance of a diversified descent in his body, that is to say, contrary, and often not only contrary, instincts and standards of value, which struggle with one another and are seldom at peace, such a man of late culture and broken lights will, on average, be a weak man. His fundamental desire is that the war which is in him should come to an end. Happiness appears to him in the character of a soothing medicine and mode of thought, for instance, Epicurean or Christian. It is above all things the happiness of repose, of undisturbedness, of repletion, of final unity. It is the Sabbath of Sabbaths, to use the expression of the holy rhetorician St. Augustine, who was himself such a man. Should, however, the contrariety and conflict in such natures operate as an additional incentive and stimulus to life, and if, on the other hand, in addition to their powerful and irreconcilable instincts, they have also inherited and indoctrinated into them a proper mastery and subtlety for carrying on this conflict with themselves, that is to say, the faculty of self-control and self-deception. There then arise those marvelously incomprehensible and inexplicable beings, those enigmatical men, predestined for conquering and circumventing others, the finest examples of which are Alcibiades and Caesar with whom I should like to associate the first of the Europeans, according to my taste, the Hohenstaufen Friedrich II, and among artists, perhaps, Leonardo da Vinci. They appear precisely in the same periods when that weaker type, with its longing for repose, comes to the front. The two types are complementary to each other and spring from the same causes." End quote. So, it should be clear, the higher man, as we've called him, Although, you know, Nietzsche's misogyny aside, in principle, there's no reason it couldn't be a higher woman. This type would include artists, people like da Vinci, but the same phenomenon uh, explains the, uh, just as we were talking about, sort of the, the person who yearns for peace and an end to this internal conflict. The same phenomenon explains him as uh, explains this non-theoretical political genius. Um that is the type of person who doesn't look for an end to this conflict, but harnesses it in some sense, just like you harness the tension of a bow in order to shoot farther, right? Well, first Alcibiades, we discussed him in the episodes on uh, Plato's Symposium and in Thucydides. Alcibiades is a great general. He's a statesman. 
uh, from Athens, and when he's banished by the Athenians, he acts as a general for the Spartans. His activity in the world of ancient Greece is not driven by partisanship or by loyalty to the state or by moral ideology or religion or anything of the kind. He's driven primarily by personal ambition and accomplishment. And so it's what it means for him to be beyond good and evil, so to speak, right? Caesar has also been included, which we've discussed at such great length, um, hardly bears elaborating upon Caesar, but uh, let's look at another person Nietzsche name drops in there is Friedrich II. And an important detail that Nietzsche includes, uh, first true European. And remember the model of the good European, the person who's not culturally a German or a Frenchman or an Englishman, but first and foremost, a manifestation of the entire cultural history of Europe. The good European has goals which are beyond the momentary or the petty or the provincial, and thus their perception of themselves and who they are and what they come from is, is at that higher vantage point. So why would such a figure be the first European? Well, to look at Friedrich II's life, uh, he was certainly beyond good and evil. Uh, he was called the Antichrist by the Pope, and uh, that's because his political ambitions were so great that he often found himself at war with the papacy, literally at war with them. He committed impieties in the name of his great cultural and political project, um, in the eyes of the papacy at least, but in the process, he became king of Germany, king of Italy and Sicily. He established a court with talents from many foreign lands. He fostered literature and poetry as well as the sciences. He founded a university uh, and he regarded himself as the legitimate successor to the emperors of Rome. And that was the you know first time when that had happened. Um, not only did he write poetry himself, but he also promoted Sicilian poetry, which was uh, not an art form from his own homeland, obviously. It's a great European art form. He employed Jews from Sicily in his court, and he particularly wanted them to translate Greek and Latin works. And so he's, you know, looking back to the forebears of all European civilization, sort of the Greco-Roman world, and he's employing the Jews who are a wandering people accepted by no individual you know, people of Europe, and yet they are part of all of Europe, right? And the most talented people, um, you know, they're overrepresented among the most talented people among all Europeans. Friedrich was also a crusader. He became king of Jerusalem as a result of the Sixth Crusade. That wins him huge prestige among the Christian world, but he does this while he's excommunicated, <laughs> He was excommunicated twice, actually. And so the fact that he does this and becomes king of Jerusalem while excommunicated, I mean, obviously that angers the church even more. And so it's for all those reasons that Nietzsche, his description of Friedrich uh, as the first true European makes perfect sense. He embodies this European spirit, which transcends the various ethnicities and cultures of the European uh, peninsula, we might say. And he fosters all of their cultural productions, right, um, as a single overarching European culture within the Holy Roman Empire. Um, he does this as a king claiming to be descended from the rulers of all of Europe, and he even transcends the religious uh, morality of Europe. He does this not through intellectual or artistic means, although he's certainly an artistic man, 
No, his accomplishments occur through political action and specifically through war, through politicking, through patronage. And in this process, he violates boundary lines and commits impious acts. We've already spoken of Napoleon, but Napoleon shares this sort of pan-European spirit insofar as he sets his sights on establishing this continental Euro you know, European empire. And he sees no one fit to crown him but himself. And that's what he does, by the way. He infamously crowns himself as emperor. So in a world of people who had embraced collectivist morality, the herd morality, as Nietzsche calls it, Napoleon has the audacity to be someone who commands. And this is perhaps one way of explaining how Nietzsche understands that difference in quote-unquote willpower between individuals that might predispose one person to be a rank-and-file uh, type of person, like your average Jacobin, and another to be Napoleon. He thinks that all matters of temperament or instinct or uh, bearing, we might say, are inherited and inculcated due to these values or cultural traits which are intergenerationally sort of inculcated into people. And Nietzsche believes that most people will be disposed to obey because of the intense selection pressure upon all life, forcing people into this collective coordination for the sake of their very survival. And in that situation, with most destined to have to obey orders rather than give them, simply as a matter of logistical necessity, the result will be that very few will have that capacity for command, that true capacity for command, because the capacity for commanding is weakened or atrophied. Um, the more that one becomes accustomed to obeying. Nietzsche describes this in Beyond Good and Evil 199. I'm going to read this very long passage in its entirety, mainly because I think it shows how Nietzsche's way of thinking about this phenomenon of the great political genius is very much tied in with his thought about all moral ideas and all values of mankind, all the things that we inherit from long, long ages of cultural selection. So... Nietzsche writes, quote, Inasmuch as in all ages, as long as mankind has existed, there have also been human herds, family alliances, communities, tribes, peoples, states, churches, and always a great number who obey in proportion to the small number who command, in view, therefore, of the fact that obedience has been the most practiced and fostered among mankind hitherto, one may reasonably suppose that, generally speaking, the need thereof is now innate in everyone, as a kind of formal conscience, which gives the command, thou shalt unconditionally do something, unconditionally refrain from something. In short, thou shalt. This need tries to satisfy itself and to fill its form with a content according to its strength, impatience, and eagerness. It at once seizes as an omnivorous appetite with little selection and accepts whatever is shouted into its ear by all sorts of commanders parents, teachers, laws, class prejudices, or public opinion. The extraordinary limitation of human development, the hesitation, protractedness, frequent retrogression and turning thereof, is attributable to the fact that the herd instinct of obedience is transmitted best, and at the cost of the art of command. If one imagines this instinct increasing to its greatest extent, commanders and independent individuals will finally be lacking altogether, 
or they will suffer inwardly from a bad conscience, and will have to impose a deception on themselves in the first place in order to be able to command, just as if they were only obeying. This condition of things actually exists in Europe at present. I call it the moral hypocrisy of the commanding class. They know no other way of protecting themselves from their bad conscience than by playing the role of executors of older and higher orders, of predecessors, of the constitution, of justice, of the law, or of God himself. Or they even justify themselves by maxims from the current opinions of the herd as first servants of their people, or instruments of the public weal. On the other hand, the gregarious European man nowadays assumes an air as if he were the only kind of man that is allowable. He glorifies his qualities such as public spirit, kindness, deference, industry, temperance, modesty, indulgence, sympathy, by virtue of which he is gentle, endurable, and useful to the herd as the peculiarly human virtues. In cases, however, where it is believed that the leader and bellwether cannot be dispensed with, attempt after attempt is made nowadays to replace commanders by the summing together of clever, gregarious men. All representative constitutions, for example, are of this origin. In spite of all, what a blessing, what a deliverance from a weight becoming unendurable, is the appearance of an absolute ruler for these gregarious Europeans. Of this fact, the effect of the appearance of Napoleon was the last great proof. The history of the influence of Napoleon is almost the history of the higher happiness to which the entire century has attained in its worthiest individuals and periods. End quote. So what we have here is perhaps a Nietzschean way of understanding the problem or the paradox that Ibn Khaldun and Turchin perceive, but explain through luxury or through structural demographic factors. With Nietzsche, the cyclical pattern of human social life is explained through the will. And of course it would be. The activity of the will is obeying and commanding. In order to more successfully impose their will upon the world, the leaders of society create the state as the subjectification of instinct, and thereby they bind the collective into a common will in which the great many will then obey, and that's a useful development. But the result is that the individual capacity for command of the constituent members of the community begins to weaken until eventually they all lose their ability for command altogether, to where even the commanders don't know how to command anymore without having a bad conscience. That, um, I mean, Christianity is the great example of this. The entire religion is about supplication, about lowering yourself, about being simply a servant of God. And we see this now, many of the things Nietzsche brings up with the current uh, people who are incredibly powerful and, um, you know, uh, the people who run the entire society who will have the gall to refer to themselves as public servants or simply a first among equals in the same way that Augustus did, right? And so what we find is that paradoxically, if these traits are not sort of kept in balance, they both wither without the self-control that comes with the ability to command uh, one eventually is no good for obeying either. Um, and that, that it's, we could say that it's this collapse of that uh, discipline or whatever we want to call it um, that Nietzsche would attribute as the sort of, what would you call it, the weakening of society on the moral or cultural level. And we find that the leaders, the 
oligarchs, the aristocrats, the pe- people whose wills are unbounded from any and all restraint, uh, who can afford to live in any kind of opulence, um, who can shirk any and all duties and relegate all difficult work to the masses, um, those who don't have to obey at all, right? Um, in their case, um, we see that their own lack of obedience also weakens their ability to command. This is the situation in modernity as Nietzsche sees it. Uh, we've all lost the ability to command. We have not exercised it um, because we've had the comfort and safety of the collective. That means those who are able to obey are in short supply as well, or getting in shorter and shorter supply. And we attempt to replace the entire hierarchical system with a smattering of clever, clever individuals forming a committee. That's how Nietzsche describes modern democratic constitutions, an attempt at replacing the oligarchy with something new. It nevertheless manifests itself in a new oligarchy anyway, as Robert Mickles would say, just a bad one. I did say I didn't want to talk too much about Caesar himself, but um, there's a passage in Plutarch that describes Caesar. It's from his work on the life of Julius Caesar. And the excerpt that I want to read begins by describing the effect that uh, Julius Caesar's character and his leadership had on his men. Uh, which I think illustrates what Nietzsche is talking about here, where he says that, you know, Napoleon was the only one who was able to be a master, and that's why he was able to master the entire society. And so, um, you know, in this description of Caesar, we see this sort of like capacity for commanding. So anyway, um, this excerpt begins talking about Julius Caesar's character and uh, the effect his leadership had on his men. Quote, Love of honor and passion for distinction were inspired into them and cherished in them by Caesar himself, who, by his unsparing distribution of money and honors, showed them that he did not heap up wealth from the wars for his own luxury or the gratifying of his private pleasures, but that all he received was but a public fund laid by the reward and encouragement of valor, and that he looked upon all he gave to to deserving soldiers as so much increase to his own riches." Added to this also, there was no danger to which he did not willingly expose himself, no labor from which he pleaded an exemption. His contempt of danger was not so much wondered at by his soldiers, because they knew how much he coveted honor, but his enduring so much hardship, which he did to all appearance beyond his natural strength, very much astonished them. For he was a sparse man, he had soft and white skin, was distempered in the head, and subject to epilepsy, which it is said first seized him at Cordoba. But he did not make the weakness of his constitution a pretext for his ease, but rather used war as the best physic against his indispositions, whilst by indefatigable journeys, coarse diet, frequent lodging in the field, and continual laborious exercise, he struggled with his diseases and fortified his body against all attacks. End quote. There's so much in here that reminds of the passages we looked at earlier with Nietzsche describing the political genius as a squanderer, right? That this is the kind of person who appears to put his men and his country over himself and his own material advancement, but it isn't because Caesar is selfless. Um, For one, he understands that, you know, every man who commands requires the loyalty of those who follows him. And he understands, along with somebody like Turchin in the modern day, that the leader of a society requires a strongly integrated social unity beneath him if he's to harness it for the ends he wishes to realize. But also the way that he 
throws himself into danger and into discomfort um, sort of speaks to the almost like involuntary, instinctive nature that Nietzsche was talking about. It's not really like self-sacrificing. It's just that, uh, as uh, Plutarch says, Caesar had such a, he covets honor so much that it's just in his nature to do so. Um, Caesar perhaps has a broader perspective on what power means and how power should be used is another way of putting it. If his only end were to make himself rich, for example, it might be acceptable for him to care more for his own profit than giving to his soldiers. But Caesar sees his gifts to his men as an increase to his own riches. He sees that riches themselves are not the point. They're not ends unto themselves. Caesar has higher goals than all that. The material or financial profit is merely the means. And so he's willing to burn through all his money, uh, use every bit of gold and financial reward that he can squeeze out of Gaul to pay off debts of his allies or potential allies or to give to the public. He's even willing to put himself into debt to do it. He'd rather spend every bit of treasury as for a higher goal that he's pursuing than sit there and accrue wealth that would allow him to live a luxurious lifestyle because like many such virtuous people that are discussed among the ancients, he sees the danger in a comfort, comfortable lifestyle style and instead subjects himself to every hardship, every danger as a means of fortifying himself, and that it's sort of a matter of necessity because he's such a weak and sickly person. He doesn't shelter himself from harm, as many sickly people do, but forces his body um, to you know, endure, and over time, this hardens him, right? And so, I don't know, we could raise the very reasonable question as to whether this portrait of Caesar is not a little idealized or whether we're being too exaggerated with his virtuous qualities and perhaps too forgiving of his faults. I mean, he did, you know, commit a genocide, but nevertheless, these aspects of his life are true, at least insofar as he did spend most of his money giving to others, either his soldiers or to the common people. He did have those conditions such as epilepsy and was said to be sickly in many ways. And yet he did also push himself and was campaigning, you know, he campaigned in eight years in Gaul and, uh, you know, certainly did not remain in the life of ease in some Italian villa somewhere, which he completely could have done if he'd wanted to, right? Caesar, um, after the Marian faction was driven from power by Sola, could have easily decided after all those prescriptions and the bloodshed, you know, subsided, he could have decided, you know what, I'm not going to get involved in politics because so many of the men who got involved with politics in the late Republic are now dead. He still could have, you know, made his fortunes in war, but just taken a modest share of money and recognition and not per pursued radical or reformist uh, politics, right, uh, against the interests of the entrenched oligarchy. He could have not earned the ire of Pompey and the Senate. He could have lived the life of most Roman patricians at that time. And the same could be said of a figure like Napoleon, um, you know, or many of these other figures. Um, now, there's a, a quote from Napoleon to go back to him. I also want to read that sort of, I think, encapsulates this. It's one of his more famous quotations. And it's this awareness of the fleeting nature of power and the danger of pursuing it that Napoleon is perfectly aware that to vie for the throne is to almost assure one's own demise, either now or later, and yet he does it anyway. Napoleon says, quote, I am the instrument of providence. She will use me as long as I accomplish her designs, and then she will break me like a glass, end quote. 
So, you know, what goes up must come down, everything ends, so on and so forth. That's the attitude of the man who had the gall to crown himself and transform um, this he, he transformed the society left behind in the wake of the French Revolution into a monarchical structure. And it's it, what we get from him is not a delusional ideological statement that his beliefs or sincerity will protect him or that God will ensure his victory or that his reign will last a thousand years. Instead, the awareness that he is an instrument of fate for a short time and he will be destroyed at the end of the story. And indeed, he finds himself banished and then eventually imprisoned by the uh, British. I want to wrap up this exploration of the non-theoretical genius by looking at a couple passages from the gay science that I think will make a great deal more sense with all the added context of everything we've considered. And it might clarify some of those passages from Twilight of Idols as well. The passage I want to look at first is called A Kind of Atavism. Atavism means a return to something ancient or traditional sudden reemergence of what is ancestral to the modern. In other words, when we say something is a throwback, right, uh, that would be to say it's atavistic. So Nietzsche argues in this passage that the figure he regards as the great man is, as the title suggests, a type of atavism, in the sense that he means Napoleon to be a return to nature or a going back, as in the passages we talked about before. This is the Gay Science, uh, section 10. The passage reads, quote, I prefer to understand the rare human beings of an age as suddenly emerging late ghosts of past cultures and their powers, as atavisms of a people and its mores. That way one really can understand a little about them. Now they seem strange, rare, extraordinary, and whoever feels these powers in himself must nurse, defend, honor, and cultivate them against another world that resists them until he becomes either a great human being or a mad and eccentric one, or perishes early, end quote. Um, I'm going to break in here to this section really quick. The rare human being of an age, uh, the rare human beings of an age are that sudden reappearance of the cultural power of a past age, the mores of the culture in an embodied form. So in some sense, the values, the morality, the strength of that people, right? The morality is a people's strength in some sense. So remember in Zarathustra's on the old and new tablets where he says the good and evil of the people is its strength. Um, and it's expressed in what they hold to be sacred and hold to distinguish themselves from their neighbors and the values of their neighbors. And that's what Turchin called a cultural trait, the shared rule or norm of the culture that binds them together and their approach to certain questions or challenges of human existence or survival. That's the culture's identity it is its virtue in a literal sense, but it's also a virtue in the sense of being its strength, in the sense that the term virtue can mean a quality or strength that one possesses. And so the people who embody these old qualities and yet exist, they emerge within the age of dissolution or disintegration, appear to be strange and rare and extraordinary. But Nietzsche is actually arguing that there was a time when such virtues were ordinary. Anyone who possesses virtue from a time outside his own, on the other hand, they have this opportunity if they nurture them to become this great person or more likely become an eccentric hermit or die <laughs> or die early since you'll be at variance with the rest of the collective, which is very dangerous. You sort of become an outsider to everyone else. It's likely that Nietzsche would probably assign himself, I think to the eccentric category among those options. Um, but I think he would have seen himself as holding 
similarly atavistic values, right? But nevertheless, I think that's very instructive that by embodying the old morality, that is their strength. And remember, you know, the Zarathustra found no greater power on earth than that of good and evil. Now, what Nietzsche says next is fascinating. Quote, formerly these same qualities were common and therefore considered common, not distinguished. Perhaps they were demanded or presupposed. In any case, it was impossible to become great through them, if only because they involve no danger of madness or solitude. End quote. So, during the time of Homer, it's impossible to become an outstanding or extraordinary individual by being virtuous, um, being as virtuous as everyone around you already is, right? The Spartan warrior who is disciplined and fearless in battle and puts the victory of the phalanx above even his own life, well, back in the day, there's thousands of others who are exactly like him. And in the next polis over, there are thousands more of, you know, a different society who have to be exactly as tough as you are or else you'll take them over, right? So it's only much later when there are democratic revolutions in every Greek city-state and a wealthy merchant class takes over and the religion no longer motivates people to want to do things like give up their lives for the sake of the collective and its sacred fire. When all that becomes questionable and people have other concerns and other motivations, well, at that point, when a man emerges who has that same Spartan discipline and ferocity, that, that those traits that used to be common, he nevertheless appears like something superhuman. So these virtues appear so extraordinary um, because they're simply out of time. But more importantly, it's the fact that they now set the person who possesses them apart from everyone else to Nietzsche. That's actually a very beneficial thing that the uh, being subjected to solitude, right? You become susceptible to madness and solitude, thinking yourself immoral or insane for having diverged so far from the social consensus. That is for Nietzsche in itself a form of virtue because solitude is something that makes you stronger according to Nietzsche. And by becoming set apart from one society and its mores, a kind of inner strength or self-reliance becomes nurtured by the state of affairs in a way that's perhaps not possible when these virtues are accepted by everyone or even just presupposed. It's when these traits set you at odds with your time and place that you could get this genius human being who could come in and transform the social order or do great things or make a new state. So this is why the great human being is both a going up and a going back because he's a return to the old mores of society, which was the strength and the identity of the old culture, but by manifesting those virtues during a time when everyone else is completely unvirtuous, he becomes set apart from society. And thus that power of solitude um, allows him to do things that wouldn't be possible during a more conservative age. You know, when the system is running smoothly and no major changes need to be called for. And Nietzsche goes on to say in the rest of the passage that therefore a great non-theoretical genius is more likely as the harvest to be reaped from a more conservative or traditional culture, that the slow tempo of its social or cultural progress will save up a greater store of energy to be released when it eventually all collapses, right? Um, again, the way he sees energy and talks about it in a physical sense, it's very vitalist in many, many ways. Vitalist in the philosophical sense. Let's skip ahead to the gay science number 23 in the same uh, the first book of the text. And this really is, in my view, sort of the definitive passage on Nietzsche's Caesarism, as we might call it. 
In this lengthy section, he explains the entire premise, setting out the conditions in which such a genius can emerge. He describes such an individual with reference to Caesar and to Napoleon. And since every bit of this section is valuable, I think it will illustrate the complete map of these ideas as we've outlined them uh, throughout the episode and actually throughout the entire season. So I'll, I'll go ahead and read the whole thing. Without further ado, The Gay Science, number 23, entitled The Characteristics of Corruption. Quote, Let us observe the following characteristics in that condition of society from time to time necessary, which is designated by the word corruption. Immediately upon the appearance of corruption anywhere, a motley superstition gets the upper hand, and the previous common faith of a people becomes pale and powerless against it. For superstition is free-spiritedness of the second rank. He who gives himself over to it selects certain forms and formulae which appeal to him, and permits himself a right of choice. The superstitious man is always much more of a person in comparison with the religious man, and a superstitious society will be one in which there are many individuals and a delight in individuality. Seen from this standpoint, superstition always appears as a progress in comparison with belief and as a sign that the intellect becomes more independent and claims to have its rights. Those who reverence the old religion and the religious disposition then complain of corruption. They have hitherto also determined the usage of language and have given a bad repute to superstition even among the freest spirits. Let us learn that it is a symptom of enlightenment." I'm going to break in here again, even though I didn't plan on A symptom of enlightenment is superstition because of the delight in individuality among the populace that sort of accompanies this. For what this means, once the traditionally widely held belief system or religion has become widely challenged, the more free-spirited among the masses begin to experiment with things, such as metaphysics or spirituality. What we get in our own time is like the New Age movement or syncretism of various religious beliefs, importing bits and pieces of foreign religions. We get large numbers of people falling into fringe and idiosyncratic versions of existing religions, effectively creating their own tiny sect of it. That's the progressive nature of Protestantism, by the way, of the ever more finely divided uh, you know, religious groups into thousands of sects and subsects until eventually every man has his own individual Christianity that's separate from the social fab- fabric, right? The 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 religion once binded everyone together and asserted certain non-negotiable things about the divine and the community was defined by all believing in those things. The way Nietzsche is using the term superstition here, it's when forms of spirituality arise, which are more individualistic because, you know, people criticize this, like you're picking from a salad bar, but he's saying that's more free spirited because you've given yourself the right of choice. Let's uh, go back to the passage quote. Secondly, a society in which corruption takes hold is blamed for effeminacy, for the appreciation of war and the delight in war perceptibly diminish in such a society, and the conveniences of life are now just as eagerly sought after as were military and gymnastic honors formerly. But one is accustomed to overlook the fact that the old national energy and national passion which acquired a magnificent splendor in war and in warlike games, has now transferred itself into innumerable private passions and has merely become less visible. Indeed, in periods of corruption, the quantity and quality of the expended energy of a people is probably greater than ever, and the individual spends it lavishly, to such an extent as could not be done formerly. 
he was not then rich enough to do so. And thus it is precisely in, in times of effeminacy that tragedy runs at large in and out of doors. It is then that the ardent love and ardent hatred are born, and the flame of knowledge flashes heavenward in full blaze. End quote. I'm going to keep cutting in, since this section here is all part of that second major idea, right? First was the rise of individual superstition and opposition to an increasingly pale and powerless uh, mainstream traditional religion. The second major ideal, uh, idea, it sounds like it comes right out of Ibn Khaldun or John Glubb, that the corruption or decadence of society certainly manifests itself in the form of a more peaceable people. Their tastes become less violent, and they themselves become less violent and more used to comfort. They no longer express their will to power through conquest or physical struggle. Like with their faith, their means of expressing will to power becomes more individual, more atomized. There's less asabia in society, less consensus over these shared points of cultural identity. But that doesn't mean that need for struggle and self-overcoming goes away. Will to power never goes away. According to Nietzsche, it's always operating in all of the private passions and motivations and goals of people. And so Nietzsche says, in fact, there's probably even more energy in the people during their uh, the decadent phase of their empire. There's an explosion within the arts and the sciences and drama and music, and the flame of knowledge flashes heavenward. That's uh, I love that uh, turn of phrase. Return to the text, the next sign of corruption, quote, Thirdly, as if in amends for the reproach of superstition and effeminacy, it is customary to say of such periods of corruption that they are milder, and that cruelty has then greatly diminished in comparison with the older, more credulous, and stronger period. But to this praise I am just as little able to assent as to that reproach. I only grant so much, namely, that cruelty now becomes more refined, and its older forms are henceforth counter to the taste." But the wounding and torturing by word and look reaches its highest development in times of corruption. It is now only that wickedness is created and the delight in wickedness. The men of the period of corruption are witty and calumnious. They know that there are yet other ways of murdering than by the dagger and the ambush. They know also that all that is well said is believed in. End quote. I think this part is... Um, breaking in again, it's fairly self-explanatory. We undertake war by other means. We learn to be calumniators. That means false accusers, right? We learn you can destroy someone by murdering their reputation. We assassinate the character instead of the physical living body. Um, just as the will to power has not disappeared, but merely been sublimated, our capacity for cruelty has not disappeared, but taken on new forms. We're fooling ourselves if we think that our transition uh, away from the cruelty of, you know, the gladiatorial arena uh, has not just simply changed forms into, you know, uh, various other ways that we are able to vent our cruelty on others. We simply do it in a more indirect and less physical manner. Um, and uh, so continuing with the passage, quote, Fourthly, it is when morals decay that those beings who one calls tyrants first make their appearance. They are the precursors and the precocious harbingers of individuals. Yet a little while, and this fruit of fruits hangs ripe and yellow on the tree of a people, and only for the sake of such fruit did this tree exist. When the decay has reached its worst, and likewise the conflict of all sorts of tyrants, there always arises the Caesar, the final tyrant, who puts an end to the exhausted struggle for sovereignty by making the exhaustedness work for him. 
In his time, the individual is usually most mature, and consequently the culture is highest and most fruitful, but not on his account nor through him. Although the men of highest culture love to flatter their Caesar by pretending they are his creation. The truth, however, is that they need quietness externally, because they have disquietude and labor internally. In these times, bribery and treason are at their height, for the love of the ego, then first discovered, is much more powerful than the love of the old, used-up, hackneyed fatherland, and the need to be secure in one way or another against the frightful fluctuations of fortune opens even the nobler hands, as soon as a richer and more powerful person shows himself ready to put gold into them. There is then so little certainty with regard to the future. People live only for the day, a psychical condition which enables every deceiver to play an easy game. People, of course, only let themselves be misled and bribed for the present and reserve for themselves futurity and virtue. The individuals, as is well known, the men who only live for themselves, provide for the moment more than do their opposites, the gregarious men, because they consider themselves just as incalculable as the future. And similarly, they attach themselves willingly to despots because they believe themselves capable of activities and expedients which can neither reckon on being understood by the multitude nor on finding favor with them. But the tyrant or the Caesar understands the right of the individual even in his excesses and has an interest in speaking on behalf of a bolder private morality and even in giving his hand to it. For he thinks of himself and wishes people to think of him what Napoleon once uttered in his classical style. I have the right to answer by an eternal thus I am to everything about which complaint is brought against me. I am apart from all the world. I accept conditions from nobody. I wish people also to submit to my fancies and to take it quite as a simple matter if I should indulge in this or that diversion. Thus spoke Napoleon once to his wife when she had reasons for calling in to question the fidelity of her husband. Times of corruption are the seasons when the apples fall from the tree. I mean the individuals, the seed-bearers of the future, the pioneers of spiritual colonization, the origin of new states and communities. Corruption is merely a nasty word for the autumn of a people. End quote. And so corruption, decadence, all, all these things, should be very clear Nietzsche is not against them. That would be somewhat silly in some way to be against them. But as we mentioned before, the autumn time is when you uh, reap the harvest of your entire society and culture. Um, the fact that it's dying off, I mean, that's no strike against it. Nothing lasts forever. And everything that ossifies into some, you know, uh, apparently permanent form is only really just um, slowly dying. In Nietzsche's view, anyway. There's so much here, but I think Nietzsche tells us the full story at the end of this passage. The Caesar, or the Napoleon, he lives only for himself, right? As Napoleon makes absolutely clear in that quotation, every explanation for his actions is simply, thus I am. This is just who I am. This is what I want, what I demand. I am apart from all the world, right? He's this type of atavism who feels himself separate from the community at large. But as this harvest of the individualism of a culture, he's willing to subject the rest of the world to his commands, right? He's not a simply apart from the world in the sense of the hermit. 
he is willing to grab the society and use it as a canvas for his goals. Everyone around him lives only for the present moment. And have you noticed that people even actively espouse this ideology today? Just live in the moment. Just be. Don't worry about the past or the future. The great human being, as Nietzsche describes him here, is the kind of person who perceives this and um, sees how he can use that <laughs> to his own ends. That exhaustedness of everyone simply deciding, I'm just going to be, I'm just, I just want the repose, I just want to live in the moment. And he sees how he can, you know, even the noblest hands will uh, work for him when he presses gold into them, right? And this is because this higher person in some sense is also living for the moment. They're willing to throw their lives away and squander everything. But they're doing it for some higher cause or some higher goal, um, some sort of legacy, some sort of great task that they feel themselves called to do, again, because this is simply thus how they are, right? And so such a person gives rise to new states, new communities, new national or social unions. Um, and it's, in Nietzsche's view, a natural cyclical thing. And uh, it's, you know, after the harvest time of the culture, um, you know, obviously there's that the winter period, <laughs> Um, when things go into complete disarray. But that's just the progression of life or um, what the life cycle of states is in Nietzsche's view. It's a thoughtless natural process. And Caesar, a Caesar figure, is part of that. It's the, the seed of that overripe apple that just fell from the tree of culture and offers the possibility of a new tree when the old one has withered and died. And in fact, such a person can only arrive during that period of the withering and decay. And so Nietzsche's Caesarism isn't like monarchism in that traditional sense. And like his other political ideas, it doesn't come with this ready-made system or ideology. In fact, it's somewhat contrary to all that. It's all about personality. And it's all about inevitability and about treating this type of person as like a natural phenomenon. Now, it's a natural phenomenon that Nietzsche's view is anti-democratic anti-progress, and of course, anti-Christian. And yet his hope is not for a figure to come along and establish this dictatorial regime for all time. And as we know from the historical record, that never lasts for very long anyway. Eventually, authoritarian systems start to crumble. This phase is just yet another thing Nietzsche wishes us to understand as part of that realistic and naturalistic view of human history. And therefore, He's showing us the value in this type of individual, the tyrant among tyrants, the king among kings, uh, the tyrant par excellence, and to even see something of ourselves in that type of individual. So that wraps it up for this week. Um, I think this is maybe one of the hardest things, this concept of how you know Nietzsche could support a, or advocate for a figure like a Caesar or a Napoleon it's one of the hardest things for modern people to understand um, and because it's so contrary to all of our values. But like with many things in his philosophy, it is a manifestation or a consequence of all of the other things that Nietzsche's talked about. And again, my goal here, as with most things this season, is not for me to personally advocate for any of this. The goal is to understand why Nietzsche thinks the way he does and why, for example, this Caesar figure 
is a consequence of many of the other things he's argued. And for us to then grapple with what that means, if we accept Nietzsche's view of the will to power, uh, if we accept Nietzsche's perspective on what the state is and how the state is formed, if we are to accept Turchin's view of like the warfare theory of social evolution or Mikkel's view that organization inherently leads to oligarchy, what does it mean to really grapple with all of that? What do we do with that information? I'm not going to tell you. You have to figure that out for yourself. It's good to be back, everyone. Uh, it's been a rough week since I've been back, um, adjusting to normal life again. It was good to sit down and do this, though, to uh, finally get back in the saddle. We're going to finish out the season. We have three more episodes, and we're going to cover... We're not going to get less controversial. Next week, we're going to talk about war and uh, Nietzsche's view on war. Uh, all right, that's all for this week, everyone. Signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimelyreflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.